Welcome to another episode of Code for Thought Bite-sized RSE, sponsored by the Universe HPC program. What exactly is user experience? Where does the term come from and why does it matter? These and other questions are going to be the subject of this month's Bite-sized RSE episode, and my guest helping me with that is Meg Doherty. And as with the last Bite-sized RSE episode, there'll be two quiz questions at the end. And of course, I will reveal the answers to the quiz questions from the previous Bite-sized RSE episode on Easy Build, so I hope you'll stay tuned. And without further ado, let's get started. Have you ever been to a website where you spent ages trying to find stuff or wondering how and where you can submit something and know where it will end up in? Or say you bought a new electronic device, but after you unpacked it all, you couldn't make head or tail out of it, despite thumping your way through a number of pages of a very baffling manual. And as for myself, as a regular user of the Eurostar train between London and Paris, I usually get lost in the maze that is Gardinot almost every single time. But of course there are far more serious cases. Like, for instance, when there is a fire in a large office building, how do people inside know when and how to leave the building as quickly and safely as possible? The way buildings, tools, services and, yes, software are designed makes all the difference between success and failure, or, as in the last example, between safety and disaster. In one phrase, design matters. Something that has been recognized for a very long time. In the last hundred years or so, there were a number of influential designers and thinkers who pondered on how we can make the way we interact with objects and services easy and intuitive. Like, for instance, Christopher Alexander and his book from 1977 called A Pattern Language. Written for architects, it also influenced a number of software engineers who thought it might be a good idea to define a set of patterns to help solve a list of common software engineering problems, an approach that gave rise to what we now call software architecture. And then there are industrial designers, like for instance Dieter Rams, who in the 1950s led the design team at the German electronics company called Braun and then later a furniture company. Awarded several times, he is still a model designer to this very day. Despite the long history of design, however, the term user experience and the role of user experience designers is rather recent. We have to thank Donald Norman for this, who coined the phrase during his time at Apple, the US company, in 1993. In fact, I'd like to stay with Donald Norman for just a minute. Because apart from creating the term user experience, he's also the author of an excellent book called The Design of Everyday Things, where he makes very clear that good design starts with putting the people, the humans, who use a particular object or service right at the center. And I took the liberty to share a clip from YouTube where he explains the concept of human-centered design far better than I could. The principles of human-centered design apply even if you don't follow the process of human-centered design. Because what are the principles? Well, the first one is the be human-centered. Focus upon the people that whatever you're doing is intended for, whether you're doing a service or a product or an organizational structure or a new way of, I don't know, stocking the warehouse or putting things on shelves. Whatever you're doing, 
always think of the people and all the people, not just the people, say, who are going to retrieve the items you put in, but the people who have to put the items up there in the first place. And if you're in the healthcare system, you have to think about patients and their families and the physicians and the nurses and also the medical personnel and the technicians and for that matter, even the people who do the scheduling and clean the place. You have to think of it as a system and look at all of the components. That's the second important thing. Find the right problem. Almost always when somebody gives me a problem to solve, I refuse to solve it. Because it's not the right problem, it's the symptom of the problem. And I want to solve the fundamental basic problem because if I can solve the basic problem, guess what? The symptoms disappear. So what characterizes a good user experience? And what exactly is good user experience design? Let's go back to one of the designers I mentioned earlier, Dieter Rams. Throughout his career, he tried to narrow down what makes a good design, and he arrived at a list of 10 statements, which I'm going to list here. Good design, he says, is innovative. Good design makes a product useful. Good design is aesthetic. Good design makes a product understandable. Good design is unobtrusive. Good design is honest. Good design is long-lasting. Good design is thorough down to the last detail. Good design is also environmentally friendly. And good design is as little design as possible. And also, Dieter Rams wrote his design credo for industrial and product design. It also holds for the design of software applications. As you noticed, these statements are far-reaching. They go way beyond the looks and feel of how the user interface or the graphical design of a particular application or web page look and feel like. User interface design is, of course, a very important aspect, and at the same time, it is a subset of what makes a user experience design, which takes a more holistic and strategic approach. In the next section, I want to talk briefly how you can get started with it, and why it's important to do that as a team, and then hand over to Meg Doherty. Have you ever thrown a dinner party? One of the guests is a vegetarian, another one has lactose intolerance, and a third one is struggling with a shellfish allergy. Getting a menu together can be a minefield, as probably all restaurant owners the world over know only too well. The success of a restaurant hinges on a number of factors. There is, of course, what food is on offer, but also what kind of ambience it creates for dinner guests. Is it quite elegance, or is it bustling with energy? In short, who is it for? Who are the people coming to the dinner party, or your restaurant? Who are the people I want to come? Because at the end of the day, you create and design your restaurant or your dinner party not for yourself, but for your guests. And in that respect, developing applications is not so different to thinking about how to design a menu. User experience, after all, is designing for other people. Putting yourselves into the shoes of others and designing a product that works for a range of different people is indeed a tricky thing, but some techniques and systematic approaches can help you. To help put yourself into someone else's shoes, put a name and a face to them. This is what user experience designers do when they create so-called personas. If you think about a researcher using a program, who is it? 
Is it Helen, the postdoc, who's just gained a fellowship and been working in the field for a long time? Or is it Bob, who is a PhD student and who just finished his master? Are they young, old or middle-aged? Is English their first language? And why did you choose this particular person in the first place? Personas can be a good place to start getting a grip on who your users are. The next question is, now that you have an idea of who will be using your app, how would they use it? What is it that they try to get out of it? Which leads to something I mentioned in a previous episode of Bite-sized RSE, that of user stories. A user story is a description of a workflow or action your personas do to get what they want from your app. And just like source code, user experience designs need to be validated and tested. In order to do that, it would be good if you have someone or a group of people you can work with and who can validate your design. Good design doesn't happen by working in isolation after all. And also don't spend too much time on getting the perfect user experience ready in the first place. Rather come up with a design quickly, discuss it, test it and improve it. After all, designing for a great user experience is, like writing code, an iterative process. But it's time to hand over to Meg Doherty now, who's been working in this space for a very long time. I'm Meg Doherty, and I currently lead user experience at the National Institutes of Health in the U.S., and I'm also a, a 2021 SSI fellow. So I've been doing UX work under various acronyms and titles since uh, 2011, specifically in research software since 2019. My first professional job was testing the usability and efficacy of early consumer health devices. Uh, we were studying things like medication adherence, SMS-based health interventions, and remote patient monitoring. This was a time when, for example, pedometers needed to be tied to your shoe. And in order to check your step count, you needed a computer. Uh, so a lot has changed even in those intervening 13 years. From there, I started to realize that capital D design could apply to more than just products. And mm -hmm. I moved to Washington, D.C. to start what we say, UXing the United States Congress so oh, that, yeah, it was a very cool project in 2016 because we weren't studying a specific technology. We were studying processes and, and people. Uh, we did a little bit of that. That turned into a set of recommendations for Congress that many have been adopted, which is very exciting. And then in 2019, I joined the National Institutes of Health as an individual contributor, a UX designer, and I've since moved into a leadership role. So when we talk about user experience and user experience design, what is it we're actually talking about? This is the hardest kind of question to answer and can be taken in many different directions. I like to think about UX as a broad definition for a strategic mm. approach to building software where end users are involved throughout the product development lifecycle. That feels the broadest category of description of user experience. And I always like to also start with why UX when I explain what UX and why UX, you know, companies that invest in user experience and listening to their customers outperform their competitors two to one. So it's very much a strategic value add that, than anything else. So when you start a new project, let's say you're designing something, a health application, what kind of systematic steps would you recommend you take when you start a user experience design? 
Yeah, we have a um, great line at the beginning of a project. Who is it for and why is it good? Mm. The first question. I coach user experience to teams with the prototype fund in Germany. And so I see a lot of different types of projects. And often I see projects think they know who they're building for and why, but then completely when it gets down to the requirements or what needs to be done, there is not a lot of alignment. So I encourage folks to spend more time upfront on that strategic work, which may not come you know, very naturally for someone who's used to, let's just write the code and let's get something working. It's a very fuzzy area and you, you never know really if you're done or not, but if you can answer the question, who is it for and why is it good? That is the first place that I encourage people to start. Some people create user personas. I know that I've seen this happening with user experience designers that I've been working with. What is your take on it? What is the benefit or the drawback of user personas? So I would say user personas are a communication tool. So they're meant to describe who that, you know, potentially that ideal customer you want is for your product or the piece of software that you're building. I think the benefits are it can add a human face to the whole experience. So, you know, Alice, the academic is a persona that, that we speak of and, you know, everyone knows Alice. And so it's a really good way to communicate what users uh, want. The drawbacks, however, they tend to introduce a lot of confirmation bias or, or bias thinking about what needs to be built on this sort of monolithic person who has preferences and needs that we've smushed together into, uh, into some archetype. And so using it as a communication tool, I think, gets you a certain point. But there are many other tools. Um, one of my favorites are mental models and jobs to be done. And it, it sort mm -hmm. of shifts the frame from people's wants and desires, which are important to keep in mind, but more towards what does this application actually need to do? What are the jobs mm -hmm. to be done for your given problem and context? So they're good. They only go so far. You meant jobs to be done, which sounds like a job list or some kind of map that you're creating. Is that what it, what it is? Yeah. So we also call them user stories. So mm -hmm. you could say, as a something, I want to do something so that something else happens. So it's very formulaic. And it's, a, again, another communication tool for myself as a UX designer in my team and the product manager you might be working with or the engineer. Yeah, we do a mapping of user stories and they have different levels of fidelity, I would say. So you kind of start with the big blob of like, where are we going? And then tranche it out for a few different big categories of work. And then more specifically, user stories get to the practicality of what do I want to be able to accomplish? When do you know that you're done with your design work? And how do you know that? Uh, never, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, I spend some time working more in the prototype world where you can kind of create concepts and theories about what can happen. But when you're embedded in a software team, it's whatever can get there in time, unfortunately. But it depends on what type of environment you're in. If you have the flexibility to be more iterative and build off, you know, your early products, you know, in, in the lean startup model of build, measure, learn. So mm. we build something, we see how it goes, and then we learn from it. So it, it always feels endless. But I can say an example, we've been joking at work, we've been working on onboarding for three years. And I think we're ready to, I think it feels ready to move on from. Um, it's more about moving on to the next challenge. Where's the biggest UX opportunity? Where's the most mm. value opportunity for users across your product? That's when you know to move on, I think. 
I think you mentioned something quite important, which I think software engineers know anyway, which is testing. But how do you validate a design? Are there any particular tips that you have? Is there a particular process that you follow? Yeah, absolutely. I spend a lot of time doing usability testing, you know, testing the usability of, of an interface. I encourage usability testing throughout the product design lifecycle before you've built anything. So you can test the usability of paper napkin design. So I would say testing early and often is the approach. And it's a matter of one of the biggest challenges I've heard from RSEs. There's not always big budgets and big time for, for mm. testing, but you can do what we call hallway testing. Most folks are on university campuses. You go around and ask people, hey, do you have a few minutes to look at my design? I mean, you get some real world feedback that way. I try to keep the testing simple as long as we're getting real world feedback and I'm good to keep the process moving. Another question that I have is, are there any particular things you would like to warn people about, things they should avoid? That's a great question. Um, things to avoid is don't overcomplicate it. When I speak to some RSEs and tell them about the power of UX, some of them look at me like, wait, you're giving me another job. I don't want another job. <laughs> um, but if you, if you could keep it simple and, and sort of adopt the mindset of what would the person on the other side of the screen feel or think, you're already doing more work than most software teams. Keeping it simple and putting yourself in the shoes of your users is, as Meg says, a great place to start. And with that, we come to the final part of this episode, the bite-sized RSE quiz. Before posting new questions, let's deal with the ones from the previous episode on EasyBuild, the tool used in high-performance computing. And the two questions were, what are the main reasons for using a tool like EasyBuild rather than installing software manually? And why is reproducible software installation important? For question number one, there's not one, but several reasons for using a tool like EasyBuild. Let's name three. First, it avoids duplicating effort and reinventing the wheel. Secondly, using installation and build scripts makes the build and installation process easier and more robust. And finally, having these scripts makes the whole process more reproducible. Which leads to question number two. Making your code reproducible helps others to verify your work. And that includes how you build, install and use your software and tools. Reproducibility, after all, and verifying your research output is the pillar of modern science. And now for this episode's quiz. And again, there will be two questions. Question number one. What is the difference between user interface and user experience design? And question number two. Why is it important to fully consider the consequences of your user experience design? Have a think, and if you would like to send me your answers, you can do that by emailing codeforthought at proton.me with the number four between the code and the thought, if in doubt, find the email address in the episode notes along with the links for this episode. And with that, until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Code for Thought Bite-Sized. The content and the interactive bite-sized RSE sessions are created and run by Jeremy Cohen from Imperial College London and Steve Crouch from Southampton University. The podcast episodes are produced by Peter Schmidt. Finally, we'd like to thank Universe HPC for their continuous support. 
Oh, time's up. See you next time. But before I forget, this podcast is covered by the Creative Commons license. See ya.